This episode of Eastern Promise is sponsored by Priors Croft Services, specialists in media, communication, and political engagement. To find out more, call 07712 402 435. And for more about the sponsorship opportunities on Eastern Promise, contact me at mike at easternpromise.site. From the PC to AI. From IBM to IoT. Technology is embedded in the base code of our region. Welcome to the east of England. Welcome to Eastern Promise. I'm Mike Rigby and welcome to Eastern Promise. With Cambridge Tech Week almost upon us, there's no better time to be in Cambridge, a city that's steeped in the past, present and future of technology itself. Our first stop is the Bradfield Centre on Cambridge Science Park, where I'm joined by Chris Bruce, Chair of the Cambridge Tech Week Steering Committee. Together, we'll explore the hugely exciting programme of events and speakers that make up the inaugural Cambridge Tech Week. Then I'm joined by Adrian Page-Mitchell, who's our guide on a trip through time and the truly amazing exhibits at Cambridge's Centre for Computing History. And finally, let's raise the portcullis and drop the drawbridge to find the best castle, tower or keep in the east of England in another crowd sorcery. Technology and innovation are hardwired into the east of England. So it was truly wonderful to see Cambridge Tech Week promoted, and I was already looking forward to it immensely. Yet, when I met my guest today, Chris Bruce, chair of the steering committee, I learned about the holistic approach that Cambridge Tech Week is taking, increasing my enthusiasm exponentially. I met Chris on a windy Thursday afternoon at the Bradfield Centre on Cambridge Science Park. Chris Bruce, board member of Cambridge Wireless, member of the committee for the inaugural Cambridge Tech Week, which is coming up this May. What an exciting time. How did Cambridge Tech Week come about, Chris? Well, I guess the question is, why haven't we had one before? Um, because there's, there's so much great tech, so much innovation, research establishments, new companies, big companies, investors, there's so much going on. Why haven't we had a platform to expose that and show that um, to the rest of the UK, to the rest of the world? Um, and I think you've got to give credit to Anne Fisher, who, um, for anybody who's in and around Cambridge, will, will probably know her. She's a force of nature. And um, she was at London Tech Week a few years back and was coming back thinking, why hasn't Cambridge got something like this? And on the way home, she, she checked and registered that uh, nobody secured the URL for cambridgetechweek.co.uk. <laughs> registered it herself there and then, and um, that was the genesis of, of Tech Week. And if it hadn't been for the pandemic, we probably would have had it before now. 
yeah. to be honest. Um, and amongst other things, she's a serial entrepreneur, but she also had a period of time when she was on the board of Cambridge Wireless until earlier last year. And um, at some point in time, she um, put it to the board of CW that given its, its experience of putting on really good events for its members and, and public events, uh, had all the capabilities to be the kind of kernel and the, the delivery arm of, of creating something across the Cambridge ecosystem. So Cambridge Tech Week is um, powered by and delivered by Cambridge Wireless, Yes. but it's not a CW event, if that right, makes yeah. sense. Mm -hmm. So we're Absolutely. very much reaching out to all the other networks, all the other associations, the groups, the stakeholders, anybody who wants to get involved, say so it's your event. Uh, it's your chance to um, showcase great innovations, uh, great developments, make connections, meet people, uh, showcase what Cambridge can deliver and, and the Cambridge region can deliver um, as, as collaborating partners with anybody nationally, internationally um, and that's really the, the aim of it. Now we're, we're chatting at the Bradfield Centre which is I know the focus for many of the events particularly on, on, on the Friday which is kind of uh, an extra sort of it's mainly built across the first three days but Friday's actually also quite an exciting fourth day Right, well, actually, Mike, I'll put you straight there. They're oh, good. No, I love it when, when people tell me, tell, uh, can explain where I've gone wrong. It's actually five days. Five days? Yes, oh, my eighth, goodness. Eighth to the 12th of May. Yeah. Uh, and it is a week. It's a whole week um, of events. And um, you should think of it in kind of three concentric circles. So at the centre is the core events, which is on the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So that's 9th, 10th, 11th, of which the core consists of two days conference at Hingston Hall, which is on the Genome campus just outside of Cambridge, which is a very modern uh, conference centre, got all the facilities, great auditorium and space for networking and, and exhibition areas and so forth. Um, and we've got a fantastic array of speakers and contributors and panellists and so forth there. Um, and then on the third day of the call, and I took a bit of a sort of deep breath when it was explained to me <laughs> we've got this three-day event but on after two days we're going to up sticks and move somewhere completely different and start again I said really <laughs> yes so after two days at Hingston Hall we're going to change pace same change location and move to the Cambridge Union debating chamber right so we're going to have a completely different sort of event um, at the chamber which you know, many of your uh, listeners will, will know it, but I hadn't been there before, and I was just blown away when I saw the chamber. I thought, yeah. wow, this is like a mini House of Commons. So we're going to embrace the venue um, and put on a series of um, debates and discussions to um, really reflect on the impact of tech. Not so much, yes. is this tech better than that tech, or what do you think of this tech, but so what? You know, what does it do you know, mm. for the economy, society, education, health, prosperity, whatever else are the challenges that we face in this 21st century. Um, and I'm delighted that just in the last few days we were able to announce that um, our two hosts for the day will be um, Krishnan Gurumurthy, yes. um, broadcaster that some of you may know. I'm apparently not allowed to say which channel he's on, but look out for the news around 7 o'clock and you'll okay. find him <laughs> um, most days. And, uh, and then also Mike Butcher, uh, editor-at-large at TechCrunch. And between them, they'll be hosting the day. In the morning, we've got a kind of question time type um, format. If you know BBC 
uh, question time with lots of contributions from the, the audience and a panel. And in the afternoon, we are teeing up two or three debates, topics to be announced, uh, debaters to be announced, but we want to get a real um, discussion about some of the things facing us, uh, the consequences of tech, uh, the, the opportunities, the risks, the threats, things to think about. So that's, those are the three days of the core. So you asked me about the, the rest of the week. So that's your core. Around that, we want to make I'm connections. I'm blown away already, so <laughs> come on, carry on. I mean, <laughs> Around that is connections, uh, connect. So we've got a program of, of proactively trying to get people connected. We've got an app that allows people to, to meet. And you sort of put in your app um, platform, you know, uh, I'm, I'm interested in X, Y, and Z topics, and we try and bring people together. And we've also got a program um, uh, called International Connection, where we are bringing in international visitors with diplomatic uh, uh, trade missions to join the conference and the core part of it, the debate, but also lay on a few things so they can meet the ecosystem in a structured way. Um, and on the Friday that you mentioned, we're here at, we'll be here at the Bradford Centre to get them a chance to meet you know, who, who can help them get started in Cambridge, locate here, collaborate here, um, invest here, whatever is their interest. And we've got a number of local partners and, and networks that'll kind of signpost them the best way to do that. Mm -hmm. But going back to the beginning of the week, if oh, I right, may. right, okay. No, I absolutely. May, Go for it. Because this is week. Around the edge of the connect, we've got our third concentric circle, which is conversations, the third C. Right. Core connect conversations. Um, conversations really is to take it outside of this sort of micro tech community to realize there's lots of other people out there that might be interested in what's going on in Cambridge Tech. Um, and we're encouraging all sorts of organizations and people to have their own event, you know, um, whether it's a, an association, whether it's a special interest group, whether it's a company, whether it's a local government, whether it's three people in a pub wanting to talk about connected beer taps and, and IoT. It all counts as a free event. Uh, they can be free to attend, they can be restricted, they can be pay, uh, pay attached. It's up to them, it's not our event, but we will list it on the Cambridge yeah. Tech Week website. Now, all plans uh, don't survive contact with reality. They never do. <laughs> and after we'd announced the week, 8th to the 12th of May, um, some months afterwards, Monday became a public holiday. Oh. <laughs> Which is great because it's the coronation and we can all celebrate it, but we thought, ah, nil desperandum, uh, let's <laughs> not worry, let's embrace this. Actually, fortunately we hadn't got our conference starting on the Monday, but on the Monday, children, young people will not be at school and college. Um, maybe it's a chance to reach out to other folks to say, yeah, this, this technic, technical stuff, this STEM stuff, could this be something of interest to you? So we've got, we're encouraging fringe events and activities that might be a little bit of, bit of fun, something to do with tech, um, for different organisations to put on things for, for children and parents that maybe have got children that might be a little bit bored, um, bring them along to do something. And the very first one that was, was, has been registered on the site already is something called STEM TOTS. I love it. You can't oh, that's get, fantastic. <laughs> you can't get much younger than that. Stem tots. <laughs> uh, just, uh, just to play with the tech, a uh, little bit of tech. So probably not too much quantum or AI in there, but, but <laughs> oh, something Start them young, why not? Start them young. Um, 
And, and there are other various other uh, fringe events going on. There's some ones that I'm really pleased to see around um, what I might call how-to things. You know, how to, how to, there's a taster on PR, how to do your PR if you're a startup. Um, and various other organizations that are doing things that they're laying on around, um, you know, how to pitch your business, things like that. So um, those events are going on through, through the week. Um, we've got a networking event for the international visitors on the Wednesday night. So if you look on the, the website, there's, there's a list of events and you'll see populated on there a number of different Yeah, um, I've got it activities. up right now in front of me. And I have to say, wow. It is. I mean, you've, I'm just here. I'm looking on the Tuesday. Quantum Technologies at 10 past 12 with Howard Watson of BT, Steve Briley of River Lane. Uh, Carmen, I'm going to... Uh, uh, from New Quantum. I will not insult her by trying to pronounce her surname. But um, you just flick, flick up the programme and you find something that's tremendously interesting. And what I get out of this very strongly is and this goes to a conversation I had with you before we started recording, and I'd also had with Harriet Fear, who's another member of the committee, uh, some months ago, in that, on the one hand, it feels like exactly the sort of conversations you expect to have in Cambridge on some level, but on the other, there is a huge opportunity for people outside the region, inside the region, from Norfolk, Suffolk, Essex, um, particularly uh, with, those, with particular interest in tech, and I know many of them will be listening to this, to come in and to have those conversations. And what a fantastic opportunity you've laid on for that. Well, um, it's interesting you should, you should mention that because I'll let you into a little secret, so don't tell anybody else. Okay, no, no, no one's, no one's okay. listening. I hope they are, but um, <laughs> um, I'm not from Cambridge. So um, I actually live down the M11 near Bishop's Dorfman, but I've always wanted to get involved in the te Cambridge tech scene. Uh, I spent, oh, nearly 38 years in, in telecoms um, 27 of which were with BT, which is, as you know, has got a huge, yeah. uh, huge uh, R&D tech facility down uh, in Industrial Park near, uh, near Ipswich. So I'm very familiar with this area. I, was, I represented BT on its East of England board, but I never got the chance to really get involved with Cambridge. And when I stopped working full time for other people and started doing a few of my own things, um, I got involved with Cambridge Wireless and the opportunity to join the board uh, as a non-exec um, was, was just too great to say, to say no to. So I've joined that and it allows me to see much more of what's going on in this community. And I, I would encourage others to think, you know, this is an opportunity, as you said, you called out quantum technology. But we've tried to put on this program some of the core topics that Cambridge and the region has a right to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Semiconductors, AI, quantum, clean tech, all, all things that, you know, um, you know, we're not trying to compete with London Tech, but they can do FinTech and some other great stuff. Yeah. But there are things that, that Cambridge, I think, uniquely has a right to say, actually, we can contribute to this debate and we've got something important to say. We've got brilliant people here in the universities and some of these fantastic companies. Um, and we want to use the core um, program and the fringe events to expose those and make connections and those can be connections for out of interest learning collaboration technical collaboration commercial opportunities inward investment um, and you know as you probably know the the, the region here is is forecasting um, huge population growth and jobs particularly in the tech area well 
to enable that to happen, we need to have international and national connections because it can't, it can't all be local. So we, we see this as the inaugural year. We see of course. This continuing every year as something to build on and uh, really encourage everybody from around the region to take a look and see what might be of interest to them. I can only echo that. I'd come every day if I could. And uh, the Friday, I, I found the Friday programme I found particularly interesting, I have to say. For an inaugural year, that's a huge offer. I mean, to get people like Krishna Guru Murthy uh, to come and sit in the Cambridge debate and share what is going to be, knowing Cambridge, a tremendously rich debate. And I'll, I'll, I'll let you into a little secret. I, I, I live in Norfolk, but one of the things I wanted to do from this podcast from the beginning was not just reach out to Suffolk and the rest of them, but was to, to, to reach out to Cambridge and find out what was going on here. Uh, because the, the limited contact I had with it whilst I was working in Parliament was sort of enough to get, you know, enough to get me, me intrigued and, and to come places like the Bradfield Centre to visit Cambridge Science Park, to get into the centre. And, and, and it, it's such a, a wonderful experience. It really does get under the skin. What is the big takeaway that you're hoping someone who visits uh, a Cambridge Tech Week event uh, will, will, will go away with other than, well, I better keep a lookout for this next year? Yes, definitely that. Um, well, I think there are a num number of different audiences. So, you know, if you're, if you're a technologist, oh, that's something I didn't know, or that's someone I really ought to talk to because I'd like to collaborate. If you're an investor, oh, that's something worth looking at to consider investing in or keeping an eye on. If you're... Um, if you're thinking of establishing a business, this is a place I'd like to work or I'd like to set up. Um, and these are some of the, um, the movers and shakers that can help me do that. If I'm from abroad, oh yes, obviously I know London, um, but actually there's things going on outside of London. Uh, and this, this could be a pretty good place if I'm in, involved in some of these technologies we've just talked about. So I think it depends on your... Um, your area of interest. Um, we have other discussions running through the theme uh, of the conference. Um, it's not just all, oh, here's some great tech. You know, let's sort of examine that. I've always been interested in what's the so what of the tech. Yeah. What does it do? Um, and we've got some important themes around um, innovation entrepreneurship, which I think is critical for the success of the UK and the, the government's putting a stall out into the growth of tech jobs and growth, you know, yeah. building those tech businesses of the future um, around uh, equality and diversity so that we get all the best of all the talents. We've got things like sessions on investing in women in tech. Uh, Lord, uh, Lord Simon Woolley is running an event, a fringe event, uh, around um, his initiative around um, 5,000 black apprentices, particularly in tech. Yeah, yeah. I think all that's just critical. Yes, absolutely. Um, obviously, the environment, you know, tech can have a part to play in the technology, the clean tech, but also technology companies, whether telecom operators, big uh, equipment manufacturers, uh, network providers, you know, we also can have a huge impact positively and negatively on the environment. So what can we do about all of the energy that data centers consume, for example? Yes, that is a huge You know, all of the, these networks that, that, that got all that equipment, you know, what happened, how they disposed of, how they dealt with. So that's, that whole environmental side is really important. 
And uh, you know, so we would look at some of those themes. So it's not all tech for tech's sake. In fact, none of it's tech for tech's sake, but there's some strands in there that we'll want to make sure that we've, we've addressed. Yeah. Um, and then you know, those sectors that are perhaps um, particularly of interest around here, you know, outside of Cambridge, like Agritech, got Belinda Clark talking yes. on that oh, topic. Yes, Belinda's fantastic. Um, clean tech, uh, connected, uh, connected cities and connected, connected environments. We're planning to showcase the, the work of the Greater Cambridge Partnership. Right, um, yes. And Fantastic. you may know that they've, they've got um, joint funding with uh, Innovate UK uh, to stimulate the use of technology um, to address some of the challenges that Cambridge, how South Cambridge has when there's a projected increase in population over the next 10 years, about 25%. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got a place like Cambridge, which um, you know has got its interesting and almost unique characteristics of that the, the, the historic city centre, but yet a huge growth in, in business and technology. And how do you manage um, traffic flows? How do you manage uh, pollution and you know, still meet your CO2 emission targets and all that sort of thing for COP26? Um, how do you manage all of that? And one part of it is how can you use technology to make the whole traffic system, the whole uh, way of operating a city more efficient so that it's, it's good to live in, it's also good to do business in, and it's good to visit. Yeah. Um, so we'll be exploring some of those challenges and how things like Internet of Things and networks and analytics and big data can help with that. What, uh, you, you probably can't answer this and I won't hold you to it, uh, even if you do, but is there anything on the programme that you are personally particularly excited to get to? And you're thinking, oh, now this is going to be good, now I'm going to make sure I'm there. Um, well, I am dying to hear what Patrick Pichet has to say. Right. Who's Patrick Pichet? Well, he's a Canadian gentleman who was until recently the chairman of Twitter, until Mr Musk arrived. Oh, right. <laughs> Prior to that, he was the CFO of Google and he's now a partner at uh, Inovia Capital. So we've got an interview, fireside chat sort of thing with, with him. Oh, that's going to be fascinating um, stuff. <laughs> I don't know how much he can say or will say, um, but I'm fascinated to hear what he's got to say because he's going to have a great insight into the current big tech scene, Yeah. Um, which I think, uh, well, I'm personally looking forward to hearing what he's got to say. Oh, that's, that sounds fascinating. And, and uh, just to take you slightly out of Cambridge Tech, there's just something that interests me, and, I, and I'd, I'd be very interested to get your view. Um, is the Oxcam arc seems to have risen again. Oh, yeah. Uh, very, very much uh, sans fanfare, but it's kind of like, oh, we, we're just going to, the government's just started to talk about it once again. Um, and uh, my view being that for the rest of our region, opportunity is there from the Oxcam arc if, if, you, if you are willing to seize it. But do you think the Oxcam arc's going to uh, play a part? In, in Cambridge Tech Week at all, uh, part of the discussions, and, and, and just what's your view on the rest of the, the east of the east of England getting um, benefit, securing opportunity out of, of what I know for some, in, particularly in Norfolk, may seem like well that's got nothing to do with us. Yeah, um, <clears throat> we have we actually have people from Oxford at, on the uh, on the program. They have been hey. allowed in. Um, <laughs> There you go. Uh, so that's the first part. Snuck in. Uh, yes. Um, we've got Oxford Algorithms and there's uh, another company 
its names escapes me just at the moment, but yes. Um, yeah, that's a very, it's, you know, obviously you've got two great centers of learning, innovation, research, and so forth, and that whole arc is, I think, being built out to Milton Keynes, <laughs> sort of stops there at the moment. But I think one of the areas that I find really interesting about that, I'll call it that arc, um, the analytical capabilities combined with the, the areas, if you include kind of Milton Keynes and, and Coventry area around automated vehicles and transport. Yes. Now I think that's somewhere where Oxford, Cambridge and that cluster there can really uh, take things forward. And I thought anybody in the region should really want to know, okay, where will the changes in transportation, um, in, in use of batteries, in the use of automated vehicles, in that whole area of you know, hybrid and moving to the changes to full electric, how is that going to affect me and my business or my, the way I live my life? And in what way, if that's going to happen, and the government's yeah. mandated it, how do we take advantage of that? How do we prepare for it? So that's one yes. area that I would have thought would be particularly interesting. And we mentioned Belinda and Agritech. Well, you know, agriculture has got to be part of that. You know, there's so much IoT in, in agriculture now. Um, got all those networks that have got to collect all that information, process it, analyze it, do something with it to, uh, you know, make uh, agriculture more efficient, more uh, environmentally friendly and all the rest of it. So it's just two thoughts about mm. why it should matter. Yeah, I mean, all I can say is uh, to people listening, uh, go to cambridgetechweek.co.uk, look at the programme, you will be blown away and get to as many of those events as you can. Uh, I will be coming down to Cambridge a lot. I, I mean, the train now for me is absolute dream. Just get, get on at Attleborough, get, at, uh, get off at Cambridge or Cambridge North. And it's, 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 there's no excuse really not to, to come and take part in, in what is gonna be a fantastic inaugural event and just in closing chris uh can i just ask are you planning next year already or are you just are you keeping because it's there's gonna be one come on let's well, be honest because yeah. they're all norfolk show they start planning the next year before yes, they've done, absolutely well the previous year's delivered doing the inaugural one or obviously is is something else you know you've got a, you've got a lot of discussions to be had a lot of um vision setting and kind of explaining um once we've got the first one completed i think people will say oh that's what you meant it looks like that <laughs> yes and then then we'll get everybody to tell us well now you've done that we could do it better which would be great um so i will encourage everybody to jump on board and tell us how it can be better um but we've had a number of conversations with people who've said oh it's fantastic i wish i'd known earlier 24 i'm definitely in for that one so yeah. i can see it getting bigger and better um frankly um Myself and the other members of the steering committee, Harriet Fear, you mentioned from Cambridge and uh, Caroline Hyde from uh, Cambridge Enterprise, Rachel Fear, uh, Kerr, sorry, from um, Cambridge Wireless, Soraya oh, yes. Jones, um, and Bob Driver, both previous CEOs of Cambridge Wireless, and of course, Anne Fisher. We're all flat out right now for the 8th of May. Um, it's cold compress, isn't it? Yes, yeah. so we're, 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 we're noting things that we, you know, with more time we could have done differently or better. Um, all contributions and thoughts gratefully received. But in the meantime, come and join us. Well, I, I look forward to it. And I have to say, at the moment, uh, it's with Eastern Promise, it's, it's uh, the, the piggy bank is sweating in the corner and looking for the hammer or down, down the back of the... Surf. But next year, 
I would love Eastern Promise to take a, a much more active role in being part of Cambridge Tech Week. And Chris Bruce, thank you for giving us that look at what is shaping up to be. I call it this week a cornucopia of tech. What, what a fantastic week it's going to be. And thank you for joining us on Eastern Promise today. Thank you, Mike. And uh, thank you to your listeners for listening. And I hope to see them at uh, oh, Cambridge Tech Week. Oh, you will. You will. Thank you. Now, admit it, you thought Cambridge Tech Week had been going for years, didn't you? Well, one thing's for sure, it certainly will be now. Eastern Promise is looking forward to joining in the celebrations and events in and around the city. And I certainly hope that I'll see you there. My thanks to Chris Bruce and all of the Cambridge Tech Week steering committee for putting this phenomenal programme together. Oh, hello. This is a gap between two Eastern Promise features that would be ideal for an advertisement. Because if you want to reach an audience of senior, director-level professionals, entrepreneurs, scientists, academics and creatives across the east of England, that's Norfolk, Suffolk, Cambridgeshire and Essex, then Eastern Promise is in a class of its own. You don't need to have an advert made. I can help you with that, or I can just read out text that you've prepared. To secure this space for four episodes of Eastern Promise, costs start at £25. To find out more, contact me at mike at easternpromise.site. And now, back to our scheduled programming. There can be no doubt that the history of computers and computing is intertwined, like the wires and cables under our desks, with the history of the East of England. And nowhere is that more true than in Cambridge. The pioneering and classic video games of the 80s were not only created here in Cambridge, they still are, with companies like Frontier and Jagex. Arm, based at nearby Babraham, are the name in superconductors. And it's also here in Cambridge where the history of computing is presented to the world in a hugely fun, quirky and passionate way at the Centre for Computing History. Regular listeners may recall that I visited the Centre to record an interview with the wonderful Susan Gowling, founder of Laptops for Learning. But I was so taken with the Centre and its exhibits that I press-ganged Adrian Page Mitchell, Collections Officer at the Centre for Computing History, to share with me and with you the wonders on show. We couldn't come to the Centre for Computing History and not talk to the Centre for Computing History. Adrian Page Mitchell, whose name is handily on a badge in front of him, Collections Officer, thank you so much for letting us come to and, uh, and enjoy the Centre today. You are more than welcome. And I'm looking around and not only the, like, the innards of, of a computer around us and all these, these boards. Do you just describe, I'm just going to describe to the listeners his memory, and it's his game over on that, which is probably not, not, not the most suspicious start, but that's beside the point. Control and uh, input output, state machine and status flags, input instruction and decoding, special purpose registers, arithmetic and arithmetic 
and logic units and general purpose registers. This amazing bank has red lights, circuit boards and wires. What does it represent? It is a very, very large processor, like CPU. Yeah. So the central processing unit you, you would see you would have in your phone or any of your old computing equipment. This is everything that the um, processor needs and is. So it's in the Guinness Book of Records. It is the largest working processor in the world. Hey. So, yeah, look it up in the Guinness Book of Records. It is there. And it was built here in Cambridge by a gentleman called James Newman, who still is the caretaker for it. So we look after it. We store it. But if something goes wrong with it, he will come and put it right. He also brings university students here to look at it as well. And we also use it when we get sixth form students in. We will teach them about computer architecture by almost, if you like, almost stepping inside this giant CPU. Oh, wow. Do you know, I, I, I looked up this build, I found this place, and just thought, oh, this looks a really interesting place to do my previous interview with Susan Gowling of Laptops for Learning, who repurposes, refurbishes tech. What a great place. And here I am in, you know, it's a Guinness... Uh, Guinness record holder, world record holder for the, for the largest processor. Now, just to turn around here, we've got, you know, Sir Clive Sinclair, a cabinet of Sinclair calculators and, and uh, you know, Cambridge Scientific. Um, yes, absolutely. To talk us through some of these, perhaps? Yes, so um, up at the top here, we've got things that we people not, might not know Sinclair used to build, which, so we've got his multimeter. Hey. And a little radio amplifier below it. Um, actually, the case is designed by his brother, I believe, Ian Sinclair. Then we've got uh, no end of his calculators. Was in here, and it's all down to a whole load of things you might not think he would have done, like um, a car, a car clock, right? And um, we've got some of his special calculators here. So the sovereign ones, and even one. Dates from 1977, which was the Jubilee one. Oh, my goodness. Jubilee edition with the crown on it there. It certainly has. And, yes, we've got some incredibly rare survivals here. So we've got, for instance, in there, we've got the Sporting Life betting calculator, <laughs> which is the only one we've ever seen. But he was such a pioneer. I mean, we've got these early calculators here. We've got a calculator wristwatch. Yes, um, I saw that when I was in, uh, a minute ago. And how fascinating. Um, to, to, so early, he seemed like a man who was sort of completely ahead of his time oh, and technology absolutely. wasn't quite ready for him. Almost. In so many ways. I mean, see, in the main gallery, we've got his car up on top of oh, wow. one of the units. And, um, of course, ridicule back in the day because it was so small and it had to have a big flag on the back so it didn't get hit by a bus or something. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, now what we've got... Uh, exactly what he was talking about at the time. He was talking about you park your car outside Cambridge. And you would get one of these little cars into Cambridge on special lanes and all the rest of it. Of course, at the time, he got laughed at. But now what have we got? We've got park and rides. Mm. And we have got electric vehicles going down cycle lanes. Yeah. It, it, it is incredible. And I actually sit, used to see on my way to work in, in Dis in Norfolk, from Attleborough in, also in Norfolk, there was, I think it was one of the, local, the sort of high school students, was going in in a C5. And yeah. I'd pass him most mornings. And so, you know, there's, obviously there's, there's a lot of people still really fascinated with what, what this chap did. Absolutely. I mean, we've got a video where he's talking about 
the biggest thing that the country needs. And this is somewhere like 1987, somewhere like that, I mm -hmm. think it was. It's the biggest thing the country needs is a rail route from London all the way up, into, up to Edinburgh. And of course he's talking about the HSR yeah. long, long before <laughs> it's um, even a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, he said, if we don't start building it now, we'll never be able to afford it. And, of course, what's it do? It stops at Leeds. Yes. Now, doesn't it? And now the HS2 seems to be running, you know, there's, the, the, in this week there's all sorts of news about that running into the uh, metaphorical buffers. Yeah, and, absolutely. And behind me, do you know, I never... There's, I, I was, there's a case of the sort of personal computers that were around just before... Um, my time, very, you know, in, in a kind of 70s, am I right in saying? And um, these, these, uh, just from around the world, these examples, um, incredible. Do you, could you just give us a, you know, we've got computers from France, from Argentina. I mean, there's one that looks a bit like uh, Sir Clive Sinclair need to call, needed to, to, to call his lawyers. Hong Kong. T um, I can, I'm going to call it Taiwan. Yeah, it's um, Taiwan. Yeah. And Australia. So, what? what, what can you sort of categorise or? Yeah. So what, basically, what uh, I've got a little introduction up here. So, some countries would license the technology mm -hmm. properly. So, uh, Timex partnered with Sinclair. Yes. And uh, they had them made in their Dundee factories. So this, even though it looks like Spectrum, is actually ZX81. Um, as is the one next to it. They've just got a, this one's just got a bit more memory, and um, we've we've got this. We've got all these uh, clone machines here. Yeah. Um, so some did them legally, but other countries, such as we've got the little Didadec, which Czechoslovakia, of course they couldn't license the technology, so they'd reverse engineer it. Yeah. So here is another Synclo clone here. Um, we've got other machines that we never would have seen on these shores, but like the Comex here. And of course, very, very big over in, um, or built in Hong Kong. And, yeah, imported to places like the Netherlands. They did make it here, but in tiny numbers. And then um, you've got other, so we've got the Radio Shack machines here, and of course they were taken over to France as the Alice. Right! So, oh, yes, of course! I can see, they are, they, you know, you literally, there's, there's Radio Shack uh, in a sort of off-white uh, case, and then all the identical machine in France, which is obviously, yeah. obviously, yeah. very sleek and you know red. Oh, um, excellent! And, and you know, you see, you, we've got this, this Thomson machine again that's uh, from France uh, with, with the tape deck incorporated, and that's where you know I remember I didn't never had one, but friends of mine having Amstrads with the tape, tape drive at the end. Um, Fascinating stuff. Absolutely. And we've got some of the more of the Spectrum machines down here. So mm. these were by Sereni over in Argentina. Yeah. So basically they would take the Portuguese Sinclair, which was also Timex, and then it was taken over to their factory where they would rebuild it, put it in a new case, and quite often improved. So we've got the, like, the little TK80X. Looks exactly like a Spectrum, but just much taller. Yeah. Because they gave it extra room to breathe. They put a joystick port in it. Right, and very important. So it was actually an improvement on the original design. And that would have been, these would, machines would have been people's very first experiences of computers right. in their countries. Ret very nice retro arcade over there, which was, which was giving a very nice... Um, Soundtrack uh, to my last interview, uh, yeah, and because um, that, that's big business now. Because you've got, I mean, in, I don't know if they've got one in Cambridge, but in Norwich, 
There's a, there's a big retro arcade bar. There is, in the um, castle quarter. In the, ca- in the castle yeah. quarter, absolutely. So, have you, did you guys have anything to do with that? Or We've been to visit them, yeah. So, you know, we do leaflet shares and that kind of thing. But, yeah, one day we had to, we had to take a trip there specifically for that. Um, yeah. Because you, so, you, you do retro gaming events, don't we you? Do. Yeah, we do. We do them here, yes. Um, but it was just really great to get hold of so many arcade machines that they had there. And obviously we've got a much, much smaller, modest collection here, but uh, it still gives our visitors an experience Add of it, how yeah. you would have first played these, these games. Yeah, right. So um, what, 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 what can we, uh, we, we, we talk through next? Because it it, uh, you could lose yourself in it. It's fascinating. It's yes, a real so why don't we come through to our education room? The 80s classroom, it says the above 80s the door. 80s classroom, yes. So through here, mm-hmm. first of all, we've got a display up the back there. Yeah. Which ah. has got... Basically, a little timeline of education machines through mm-hmm. the years. So we start all the way back in 1978 with our research oh machines goodness. 380Z, which is running one of the education Wowzers. programs from um, uh, Northamptonshire, I think. Oh, because um, obviously some of, some counties took research machines, some took Acorn machines, and of course this is a very very big part of the museum mm-hmm. story is Acorn. So. Along here, we have got some of our BBC Micros. Yes. We've got little programming guides. You can actually start right at the oh, beginning wow. of coding. We've got, we've got these little coding... You have coding. got this how, to, how to, to do code, to go coding on the BBC Micro. My goodness. I mean, I'm pretty sure my, my, my father-in-law slash engineer has got this uh, BBC Micro graphics and soundbook on his shelf at home. But, I mean, I'm of the vintage that remembers the RM Nimbus machine. Absolutely. At school. Yes. Not everyone had a laptop. You had to sort of go to the actual computer room, and, uh, and it's two to, two to a, uh, an RM Nimbus. Absolutely. I mean, they were colossally expensive. Yeah. Um, they're based on, loosely on PC architecture. So um, you start off with the, um, the normal Nimbus there, and then we've got, like, a 186 machine here. Yeah. 186. Yes. And then um, these ones, we've actually still got connected to the servers. Oh, yes. So if we actually reset it, we can go back oh, to the main goodness menu me. here. I, I, I'm a teenager again. And, yes, they're, they're coming, they're coming off of the actual servers. So we wow. just... Wow. At the moment, we think these are the only two publicly accessible Nimbuses linked to a server still in existence. Really? So... Yes, so well, here we can... Well, every day is a school day. We can learn it up, load it up, and then, it, yes, we can go I'm, into I'm here. sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm back to my school days now, <laughs> Daintree School in Daventry. And we can load North Granny's and Granny's Garden oh, on there. Oh, my goodness me. Um, typical of these old monitors, they do not half get Granny's an awful Garden. lot of static on the machines there. Normally, as well, we have got file stores up here so that the um, BBC Micros are connected to an Econet. Mm-hmm. Um, system. So all these eight BBCs that we normally have in here are linked together through this network. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, at the moment, the hard drive has decided it doesn't want to work. They do that, uh, don't they? They from time do. To time. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm noticed that there's a display about the ARM processor, which is obviously, yeah. a, you know, a huge name to do with Cambridge. And I know that uh, Dr. Mark. I'm going to say a quick shout out, to Dr. Mark Eastwood from ARM who is one of our regular listeners and often contributes on LinkedIn uh, to, to, to the, uh, my, my, burbling, my burblings in text on social media. 
But uh, yes, and of course, we in the early days of the museum, we have Arm to thank for helping to get the building into a habitable condition. Mm. So, um, but you know, not just Cambridge, we've got a lot to be thankful for them as well. But yes, we've got our, of course, our big acorn collection. And we do yep. have an awful lot of BBC micros. We have, tend to have them doing different things, like this one is normally uh, running its art programme. Because the brilliant thing with the um, BBC micros was how completely expandable they were. So you would put new ROM chips in them to get them to do yes. all kinds of things. And um, I think I might have just switched that off. Ah, that's why. So let's turn the pointer on. And then we go... And now we've got this art programme. Oh, my word. So we word. can actually come and load. And we're looking at, a, 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 you know, what kind of... This is the um, AMX Super Art we're looking at now, which is file edit goodies. And there's a... a I don't want to be unkind, but a basic art programme, the fact that Absolutely. many of us remember from our youth. Yeah. Um, what kind of vintage is, is, is this? So the BBC Micro is 1981. Right, yeah. And um, it was in schools until about 1985. Uh, there was a wonderful programme where the... Because obviously it's called the BBC, the same mm -hmm. company, obviously, for younger viewers that produces your EastEnders. It says British Broadcasting Corporation in full on, the, yeah. uh, on there. So Acorn won the competition to produce the machine, and then the BBC produced a whole load of TV programmes where they would basically teach the country to code. Right. And all these programmes were produced. MicroLive, I believe they were called, famous presenters. And um, they would show you how to code your computer and get, your, get the most from it. The big problem was the BBC Micro was very, very expensive. <laughs> so £399 in, like, 1981 is about yeah. 1500 in today's money. Jeez. So people could not afford them. Um, so people were buying the Commodore 64 and the Spectrum for home, mm. different basic languages, of course. Yeah. So they didn't get that many of these into people's homes, but very, very widespread through schools. Mm. I mean, I used them at, at uh, school. Oh, yeah. And that's uh, up until 1985, and then they actually, to the surprise of a great many people, they um, produced BBC Micro. Right, because um, things like the PC were still very, very expensive in 1985, but they yes, won this. Yes, I recall. And then, yes, they, they came up with things like the Doomsday Project. So I remember when I was a young lad at ah, school... Ah, the D BBC Doomsday yes. System, yes. We went all the way round um, Newmarket. Was my town. Right. So, um, we had to say how many churches were there, what shops were in the town... Um, try and find some um, information on the population and all the rest of it. Of course, um, Newmarket was a big horse racing town, or still is a big horse racing town. Yeah. And the only thing that I can see on this disc, because they come on these big laser discs, big 12-inch yes, laser discs. It's about the size of a, you imagine a, a CD, but the size of a, a, a 33. Yeah. 33-inch record, for those who can't um, see this. So if we hopefully type in Newmarket in here, um, for the kind it's of going to go off, look on the disc for everything to do with Newmarket. Oh, yes, there's this LV ROM player. Uh, text, towns in southwest Suffolk. And These items have been found. I think that's all it's going to find, which is a bit... <laughs> I can never find out because my one photograph is still on here of a very angry-looking jockey. 
Um, <laughs> I'm took, sure there's a story attached. Yeah, I, I took a photo of him and he took great, great exception to it. But here we go. It's um, Newmarket's population 16,235 in 1981, 34 stud farms. Tell us all about the, the town. It really does. You've and, got... Um, it's absolutely amazing. Um, now, let's see if my picture comes up. It might do. Oh, no, we've just got a... We've got Landsat. Yes. Oh, well. Uh, but, but, yeah, you can... Basically, this is a great snapshot of time. And, of course... It um, certainly is. I mean, it's... it's what, what, a, what a wonderful thing to do. I mean, I hope we, we, we'd still have that impulse to do something like that today. But it, it, it just seems like somebody sort of went, this is a good idea. Yeah. For the, you know, for the public good, let's get on with it. And how incredible. Yeah, but it says there, 9,000 schools and 1 million people participated in the project. Whoa. Big problem was that the system cost £5,150 in 1986. Which, yeah. The price of a car. Um, so the uptake, especially in schools, was... It could have been better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, 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 in many ways, as I say, to come back to the, the history of advertising trust, and I, I, I mention it because it's, it's, it's an issue that they're having with what digital obsolescence, this LV-ROM system, and they have to sort of, like you, keep um, being able to access all these assets because they never know when someone's going to bring in something that they're going to want to recover Absolutely. on something like an LV-ROM. Um, Yes, I mean, a few years ago, the museum reversed-engineered this system. And, um... Incredible. We were able to basically get all the information off, um, rebuild it, and if you go onto the Computing Histories website, you can actually use the system in, like, an emulated form. Mm. So that was our main motivation for... And, yeah, even closer view of the map of, of so Newmarket and the racecourses. I'm determined to find my... You're determined... So hopefully, click on the photo. Come on, come on, Mr. Because Jackie. we were so disappointed when we rented the system. Our school, we were like, right, where's all the information? There he is. There he is. We we we've seen the. I'm going to take a photo of the. It's, it, it's got a flicker, but that's that's about par for the course. With the yes, fantastic we've got only 50 hertz picture. So of course. what's the? I, I see Tommy Flowers on this on this board of pioneers in computing, which which a name. Anyone has any dealings with BT? Uh, Tommy Flowers will be will be uh, a familiar name, and you've got Alan Turing, um, and so many others. Uh, but it's yes. those, those names that kind of stood out a bit in terms of certainly in terms of a um, uh, East of England uh, connection. But um, where where did the idea of the Centre for Computing History come from? It originally came out of one man's collection. So uh, basically, over in Haverhill in two thousand and seven. There was a gentleman by the name of Jason Fitzpatrick who basically had the, as he admits, more disposable income than he knew what to do with, and he just was buying computer parts, and then he filled a warehouse up, mm. then he filled another warehouse up. Yeah. And then um, he had all these wonderful machines sitting there but not telling a story. So uh, Board of Trustees was formed and decided to bring the museum to Cambridge where he was, we can start telling... Mainly, we go for the social angle, so how they've changed people's lives. Yes, yes, of course. So we do touch on Tommy Flowers and um, Alan Turing and people of his ilk, uh, Charles Babbage. Yes. Um, so they're the beginning of the story, but there, you know, there's other other museums that will do that. Yeah, of course. Early history, better better than us, shall we? <laughs> so, but 
We are currently doing a very important project. So you mentioned the likes of um, Turing and Tommy Flowers. Have you heard of David Kaminer? And Mary Coons. I, I feel like I should have done, but my ignorance is going to have to display itself, I'm afraid. Yes, so here in Cambridge, if we can go down Absolutely. into the main gallery, leave our education room behind. This, is, this, by the way, is where we get school children in. They come in, they do a bit of coding with the school. They'll get a tour around the museum. Very, very important part of what we do is the education side. Of course, of course. So um, then they'll do a bit of computer architecture. If they're smaller, we'll get them to identify computer objects, that kind of activity, and mm. that's what our education team over there right now, they're working on something new. Excellent. As they always are. Fantastic. If we come out into our main gallery, you can see up on the Green ceiling, up. these are our, ah, our computer yes. pioneers. There are photographs all across the ceiling, everyone will, uh, Bill Gates immediately, Steve Jobs, uh, Steve Wozniak. Also recognisable mainly because he keeps popping up on the Big Bang Theory. Indeed. Um, so we have Turing himself. And, and Turing, um, absolutely. Wow. Well, what we've actually got here, this is our oh, we're going project for the Heritage Lottery Fund. Yes. Talk now, to me about that. OK, so basically in Cambridge we had a computer called EDSAC. Right. came online in 1949. Hey. And EDSAC was partly funded by the Lions Tea Company. You're kidding. Because the Lions Tea Company... Uh, those of you who don't know, I think about the only thing left now is the Lions made ice cream. Yes. Um, but basically, they were getting swamped by paperwork. So you can see on our display in front of us, we've got a room in an old chapel where there's about 100 ladies yes. at work being watched by these very stern gentlemen. They do look very stern. Some of them are doing the mathematics on their contometers here. Some are receiving the orders. Some are placing orders for ingredients. And then some are doing the payroll. Yes. So they thought to themselves, wouldn't it be great if we had one of these newfangled computers yeah. to basically cut out the errors that are going on with this human computer? Indeed. Computers well-programmed cannot make a mistake. Our brains can. Yes. So they gave Cambridge University about £3,000 yeah. to finish EdTech off and prove its concept. And then they took the design and by 1951 they had enhanced it and built... What you see on the wall here, the Leo one. And, and it looks like, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that, if you'd have told me that was Cape Canaveral in, you know, at the moon, moon, about the time of the moon launch, I would have completely bought that. But yeah. it's not, it's Lion's Electronic Office, Lions, Leo. Yes. And Lions it says, and indeed it does say Leo on there. Yes. Amazing. So we've got the Leo one team here. So uh, we've got John Pinkerton, and then we've got. Uh, Ernest Leonards and of course we have David Kaminer, all these great engineers and who else we got here, some of the people, I mean Gene Cox was another one and we've got a name but we don't know what it stands for and that so often happens in computing um. industry where some of their names are lost because we've got a very important lady on the banner behind us here. Mary Coombs. So this is Mary Coombs and she actually wrote the first ever commercial operation software. So the payroll, the ordering system. Um, her programme even made the ice cream vans that went round the council estates so they used less petrol but sold more ice cream. Really? And yes, yeah, so she's the first female commercial programmer. And um, she stayed with ICL way, way into, I believe, the and 1970s. That is incredible because 
these days you get people turning up on the telly, selling, you know, flogging this app and that app for, you know, commercial, absolutely, commercial accounting and operations, payroll, and and here, you know, here we've got a, a pull-up banner of the people who, who kicked it all off, yeah. of, the, of the woman who kicked it all off. But what makes Leo so important is what you're looking at there is the world's first business computer. Yes. Now, what's brilliant about Leo One, going back to our Leo here, is that a lot of the other companies, massive companies in the country at the time, like Ford Motor Company, yeah, Dunlop Tyres, they're looking at Leo One and they're going, crikey, that could do our accounts a lot quicker than we can. Yeah. So they started to buy time on Leo One. Okay. So they would come in, they would do their work on there, and that actually led to um, the people at Leo thinking to themselves why don't we start producing these computers and then we can sell them to these big companies. Yeah. So the Leo 2 came along and not an awful lot smaller than the um, Leo, but I can't remember, I think it was, I think it was still Valve technology, the Leo 2. And they sold about 14 of them. They went into the massive companies and then these massive companies were becoming more and more efficient, making more and more money. Yeah. So then they streamlined the design and they come up with the Leo 3. Oh, my goodness So me. the Leo 3 went into places like the post office to do pension payments, benefit payments, that kind my of thing. God. And they only turned off the last Leo 3 in 1982. As recently as that? Yes. The team had come to Cambridge, taken the EdSat design and... Run with it. Yeah. And ran with it, absolutely. And, and, and yeah. how many iterations of Leo were there after that? So, yeah, it, it, Leo's one, two, and three. Right. But So there's about 14 Leo 2s, and it's something like 26 or something it, it, uh, Leo 3s. What a, it's almost like a different way of life entirely, isn't it? Absolutely. You, you just think, well, why don't you, you know, in, in these days when everyone's got one on their desk, you just think, buying time on a computer yeah absolutely but, i mean because we you know in the, we go back to days where the you know the, the, with the moon the moon landings if you went to nasa and asked to see, see the computer you'd be introduced to a human being absolutely As, you know yes. um, so bring me the computer you'd have, they'd have brought you a person yeah so Ka kathleen johnson was exactly in figures yeah um, he said plugging a movie <laughs> this is already blowing my mind, but, uh, you know, let's... let's, let's uh, yeah, so we can go into our room here, which actually has all four generations of the computer you can see before you here. So right. we've got one piece from EdSac 2. So they built the original EdSac in 1949. Mm -hmm. It became immediately overworked because basically the whole university was using it. So Cambridge <laughs> University decide, let's build a bigger computer, but let's make it five times more powerful. But that meant having these huge valves that you'd normally yeah. see, like amplifiers and things, it had to be five times larger. Yeah. So this is one of its arithmetic units. This is pretty much all that survives out in the wild. We think Cambridge <laughs> University have got more of it, but um, yeah. in, their, Cough it up, in the Cambridge Maths Lab, exactly. Yeah. Um, you can see Sidney Barton putting one of the chassis into one of the units. So there are 26, I believe, of these in one unit, and then yeah. there are 20 of those units. It's another world, isn't it? So everything would have come out onto paper, so you'd have had something like the teletype here. Yes. So this would have been your display. Everything would have rattled out onto paper. You would have programmed your um, punch tape. If you wanted your punch tape in another um, language, you would mm -hmm. need a compiler tape. So we've got a Fortran compiler tape there. You would load that Fortran. in first. Load in your tape. It would give you a new tape. 
of that program compiled yeah. as you required it. Um, we, this is our oldest working machine. This is our Elliot. So this is a second-generation machine. So the imagine Leo, um, not Leo, EdSac 2, if it was here today, would probably fill this main gallery. <laughs> God. And power-wise, we've got a one-kilowatt heater keeping us warm down here. Yeah. EdSac 2 would use the equivalent of 70 of those heaters. And so 70,000 watts of power. I heard tell... Out at Orford Ness, and what I love is we're keeping this in the eastern region, which is kind of my, my, my bailiwick, my self-appointed bailiwick. When it was all valves and, and, and the big, the big um, radar array, the dragon radar array out at Orford Ness, the top secret one we're not supposed to know about. Yeah. Uh, uh, that became a BBC facility. And they didn't need any heaters because the tech kept them warm. Exactly. And when it yeah. went to digital, it's like, oh, my God, it's freezing in here now. Because all of a sudden the valves had gone, they'd switched to digi you know, more, more digital, a uh, digital yes. system. And suddenly that, that source of heat had been taken from them. So it's all yeah. extra coats and, uh, and you know, but one they, kilowatt heaters, boys. They actually had to and build the um, air conditioning system for EDSAC before they installed it. Right. Um, and it had a big silver chimney on the outside of the building and someone actually told us that uh, the years it worked, which was 58 to 72, it actually cracked every single brick on the outside really? of the building with the amount of heat really? that it got out, out of the system. Absolutely incredible. And then, of course, they start using the transistor rather than the big, yep. expensive, slow valve. Yes, you imagine I see. You, put, you put power into the valve and it slowly heats the gases and clicks open. And then um, it's, you take the power and it cools down and clicks shut. Imagine how much slower that is than even the transistor that's a switch, switches on and off. You've just explained to me how valves work. And I don't know why I never knew that. But I didn't. And you've just it's explained that to me. a very simplified way of saying how they work. I know, but yeah. it worked for me. So thank you for that. You, that's, you know, like I say, every day is a school day. And so, so uh, of know. course, the computers go from these huge room-filling machines down to this giant cabinet here. I mean, this still weighs about half a tonne. This yeah, is our Ferranti, Ferranti, Ferranti yeah. 100. And this is one of its boards with just four transistors. Now, imagine your phone's chip now has got billions of transistors in that tiny, tiny... Little that, that, that is that you know, you, you, it, it's about they're about the size of imagine it's slightly thicker than a the very smallest, I won't say watch battery, but you, you know the ones lithium cells. Yeah, and you know four of them on this on on a, on a board that you know you don't you don't see boards that size in in desktop computers anymore. They're much smaller than that. Imagine now. that's way way bigger than your phone. In, indeed, just that one card. That's that's about that's about mini iPad size. So yes, yeah, so. The rest of this on here is basically the circuit or the instruction for those transistors. Yeah. And there's about 150 in here of those boards. You can just see them all in there. Incredible. I and can, I can. Yes, and it was built for one purpose. So you, if you were in the market for a computer, you would have to tell Ferranti, what do you want this computer to do? Mm. And this was mixing a chemical called Paraquat or a weed killer. Yeah, this is an RC, RCI uh, in the RCI Pilkington Paraquat factory. Yes. And it stopped. The factory had had an accident in 57. And this came on, online, 57. I believe, or they started bringing it online in 63, and it's finished in 65. But this is the very first computer to ever have a factory built around it. Yes. So that's the importance of this very oh, machine here. Built around yes. it. Yes, so the factory was designed around this computer design. I mean, that's, that, that's incredible to say, you know, I, want, I, I have to tell the people building... It's like telling Dell... I want this to do yeah. my books, or I want this to uh, to design this, that, and the other. 
I want this to do uh, virtual reality. And I say, yes, of course, we'll send you that. I mean, you, do, you can get that, I suppose, to an extent. But not, you know, it's, it's usually not like this. Because listeners, listeners in the comfort of your own home, this is, it's, it's basically, it's, it's, it's slightly tall, it's taller than a kitchen worktop. It's, it's like a kitchen unit, if you can imagine, with metal cabinets and a worktop with sort of all, all, you know, old-fashioned knobs and switches. But you've just said the 19, late 1950s. I'd have said it was later than that. But you're the A. I mean, I, I, it just looks that way. 1963. Yeah. Um... And also, also this year, the first episode of Doctor Who is broadcast. I know that. Um, but the amazing wow. thing about these computers is that okay, this would have cost half a million pounds. Really, um, the equivalent of half a million yeah. pounds in today's money. But it was in use for twenty years. Indeed. So sixty-five to eighty-five. Then it was eventually they replaced it with an IBM. Because it just worked. It, it mixed just the chemicals to... out exactly. It mm. got the the program was able to mix the chemicals safely. They're all piped in. Yeah. Instead of having someone heave a vat of sulfuric acid or whatever. I don't know what is in paraquat, but it's very very explosive. Um, <laughs> so there was chemicals yeah. going into the floor. Gas is all about the place, and of course, an accident was inevitable, which happened. This. The, the idea of these early machines is they made industry safe. That's, mm. That was their main purpose. And one of these, only in recent memory, was taken out of use. Uh, the last one was in a nuclear power station. Yeah, you, you want that. You know, it was in charge of its water cooling system right yeah. up until they decommissioned yeah, the plant. Because they oh didn't replace it with God. anything new because this just worked. If something goes wrong with computer A That's... in this side, you've got computer B here. To just think, yeah. instantly click over and take over what it's doing. But it's like the pace of change kind of has outstripped that. And Absolutely. I, I, I know. That, I'm sure that's a good thing in many ways, but but it, but in others maybe not because we've there's that kind of robustness is kind of almost has been might have to rediscover that because you know we're just having a, a, a conversation with Susan Gallen this afternoon about refurbishing tech, but she's very clear that progress is a good thing and yeah. that needs to continue. And speaking of continuing, let's 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 yes, look on. So. What else we've got here? We've got uh, a remain of a third generation machine. So we've got a mechanical calculator here. And this mechanical calculator is just full, if you can look down the end there, of thousands of gears and cogs. I, I can confirm, listener, now, it is full of thousands of gears. And if you want, take oh, the light on it. That's, yeah. It looks like the kind of thing that when I was very, very young was on the, uh, the door of, a bu- of the bus when you got on. And then you'd have to do all the, the rotors and yes, then... it's a very similar machine, very similar machine. Um, so if we quickly put a number in using these levers that are called registers, this is where the computing term comes from. Um, yeah, and I put in three hundred and fifty-six thousand five hundred thirty-five, and I'm now going to multiply that by thousand twenty-four. So right. I'm going to turn the handle four times. So you have indeed on this on this sort of like light brown machine. Now, like a computer would nowadays, it will now use more of its circuits, or in this thing's case, more of its wheels. So I'm going to move yeah. to the tens. I've now got twenty-four. I don't need anything in the hundreds. But I do need a 1,000. So 1,024 times by 356,535 is 365,091,840. I can confirm that the dials do indeed say that. Wow. And it's, it's, it's incredible because it, it, in many ways it shouldn't shock us because this is, this is where all today's tech has come, has, has come from. But it is, 
it, it, it is surprising to see something, A, that's that primitive but work relatively quickly. I mean, not, yeah. you know, these days you, you, you can ask, you can ask your, your smart speaker to do it for you. It's incredible. It really is. I'm kind really of lost is. for words, which is so not a good look for a, a podcaster. The Nippon Calculator Company were one of, over in Japan, they started talking to a few little startup companies over in America, yeah. and they said, can you turn all these gears and cogs into electronic circuits? So that's when we started putting transistors in those little boxes. So the integrated circuit. Those are the first. They first went into electronic calculators, which right. we've got some around there. Yeah. So all the functions of this are down into these little microchips. Incredible. And initially, they're all working separately. You've got some doing the arithmetic, some are doing the um, registers, some are doing... So essentially, on the big circuit board of the machine like that, our big IBM there, the companies initially working together like Intel, Texas Instruments, who came up with the chip from that calculator. And they all think, why don't we start putting all those functions of all those different chips into one unit? And that's where they come up with the microprocessor. Right. And our, uh, one of our earliest microprocessor machines is our Olivetti over here. So it's, it's this like has a, got it's a big like a vertical desk, board. With yeah. This has got a big vertical board in the back, big CPU in the middle of it. Mm. And um, yes, this was also in use for about 20 years. Um, we believe by the lady in the photograph here who is um, working away on the machine. Mm. And um, they gave it to her when she retired. Oh, right. My goodness. But we've got other machines here that are really important to the story. We've got... This is when they were already starting to worry. The unions were starting to worry. Computers were taking people's jobs. Yeah. So they produced the visible record computer. Now, what this basically does is yes. it produces visible record of... Indeed, as it does. Um, but it's got this, mechanic, this uh, electrical strip. So this is the first time you start seeing, like, um, credit card strip. Yeah, you, what you, so that so, stores it electronically. Yeah, and then a person can still get it out of the drawer to work on it. So the so, idea was that it would actually keep some human work. Yes, absolutely no need for it at all. It's no, done. it's no. I can, I can see why you you you, you do that, but you just think, but why? Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and it's in, and what we're looking at is a, is a sort of a, 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 again another desk-sized machine, uh, very industrial-looking. That's not quite A4, is it? No, no, it's not quite A4. It's 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 it's, it's much sort of narrow, it's narrower than A4, taller than A4, but it has, as as, as Adrian has said, uh, this uh, magnetic strip like the one you get on on, on your bank cards, or, or any sort of loyalty card these days, down the left hand side, uh, and it, 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 about seems about the same width, maybe a bit bigger, and uh, it is as, as as again as Adrian says, uh, the the typed bookkeeping or whatever it is um, description plant item expense so they've basically punched it all in stored it on the magnetic strip but they've still got the the, the record for, yeah, for make work basically absolutely. which didn't i imagine last very long no no so uh, mid to late 60s and then they kind of moved on also you're seeing other technologies here as well this could be seen as a very early memory card yeah um 256 bits bits and it's it, it's it's about the size of a of a of a uh, you know a laptop a modern laptop, sort of slightly bigger than a notebook, slightly smaller than a uh, and then the, the kind of one I've got. They were talking a uh, hard drive over there, which is basically there's coils of metal inside there that get magnetised to store data, so it's a big Crikey. drum. And uh, yes, while we're talking about um, how 
data was stored as well. So we've got here a roll of paper tape. And that's alcohol, is it? So this one is, oh, this is in Elliot's own language, this one. So this would load in a game called, or tic-tac-toe, or noughts and crosses. And you can see on the tape there, it's just loads of punched holes. It so is loads of punched holes. Where there is a one, where there's a hole is a one, where there's no hole is a zero. And there you got your binary, yeah. That's your binary. Now, if you wanted one music track on your music player in paper tape form, you would need about 12 and a half kilometres for a four and a half. Jeez. Do you know, I knew you were going to say something long, but it wasn't 12 and a half kilometres. 12 and a half kilometres, yeah. And, of course, if we move on to our next room, this is where all these companies are having to work together so the computers are getting smaller. For the computers to get smaller, what you store the data on has to get smaller. Yeah. So, so we turn to magnetic tape. Magnetic tape. And it's about 100 metres yeah. for your MP3. Yeah. Track. So it's there you go. awful lot smaller than your very unworthy um, Westinghouse Automation. And there's a name. Yes. And so we've got these big, dis these big digital um, reels of tape on top of this, which is, you know, I think will be slightly more familiar are, to people. These are not reels of tape. These are actually... Are they not? Ah, I, I stand corrected. What you can see inside there is a big magnetic disc. Oh, right. I, I, you know, I saw the big, the big circular thing, about, again, about the size of a... So, yeah. bigger than a 33. And I, I assumed, foolishly, was a tape. But so, it's yeah, not. you would take that out, you would insert it into the machine, you would save your data. This would then either go into a fireproof room where you work mm -hmm. or you would take it home. So that, imagine that's your USB stick yeah. of the day, about a... <laughs> um, 18 it's megabytes like you go to the or something. Discus. Yes, but they soon realised that those discs could get damaged mm. uh, quite easily, so they started putting them in enclosures. Right. So here's what you would know now as a hard disk. <laughs> oh dear. So yeah, that's a, that's that's about the size of a, a large kitchen drawer. Yeah. Is is, is your hard disk? Yeah, absolutely. And, and what's the what's the what's the the this is the digital PDP-11. PDP-11, yes. So and we've got a PDP-1135, because the computer is only the part with the switches. So that's your computer there. Oh, I see. Um, the computer gets even smaller by 1978, so that is here. So um, we've got its, its much smaller hard disk it, there. You talk, yeah, you're starting to more, more in, in, in the realm of what Absolutely. we recognise as a desktop size now. Yeah. Um, uh, Maynard, Massachusetts. Yes. So that was apparently controlling Newmarket's traffic lights. <laughs> so um, walk through this a, area. Just a, oh yeah, that's what he was doing. Yeah. It's a, it a pretty important job. So here's probably one of our oldest exhibits. This is a mechanical computer. It's basically a Lancaster's bomb site. Ah yes. So, is it Mark 14 bomb site? Yeah. There you go. So that's probably our oldest computerised machine or mechanical but um so it, it, it basically does the, the the job of sort of calculating wind speed uh, absolutely a, a, yes a bit of an unfortunate end product but um wind speed course um wind direction leveling you know how level is the plane flying yeah. um and then so yes, we know when to how to know. make uh, that's where computers start developing rapidly of course yeah. when people want to kill each other far more efficiently there's, with there's, the military machines I was, I was so pleased to visit Astral Park recently because my and I'm going to shout out a name here my old friend Sue Simmons who's the innovation showcase manager there was saying that yes I, I completely agree unfortunately the need to deliver death is, is, is quite the motivator yeah. but also thankfully and this goes back to what we were, we where we started is gaming 
Yeah. It's a huge source of basically so many developments of being two gamers going. Do you know what we could do with? We could do with one of those. It's and they, like, and they go right. Let's let's do it. Yes, yeah, like EdSac back in 1956. Um, the engineer just wanted to see how logical his computer was. Yeah. So he writes OXO for the EdSac just to see how more logical his computer is than uh, <laughs> the human brain. And of course, what does he find out? Yeah. That we can make mistakes. <laughs> a well-programmed computer cannot. Yes. So that's it, the, that's a lot the trick, of this though, is. Is technicians who were bored, or they wanted <laughs> they wanted to push their machine in different ways. We've got one programs for our PDP eleven there. Yeah, that people wrote for their kids when they came into the office just to keep them quiet. <laughs> and we have, we've got some of them on these machines. It's a real oh, who amongst us haven't hasn't downloaded an app Absolutely. just to keep the kids quiet? And then it's, that's how it starts. Absolutely, that's how it starts. Can you tell me? I'm, I'm intrigued because it's, you've got this exhibit here with. Bakerloo Line, Central GDP yes. Computer, GC, uh, at the London Underground recently acquired by the... Because you just think, you're actually de- this is dealing with some pretty serious stuff. Yeah. So, um, the London Underground contacted us uh, midway through the pandemic, so we couldn't do an awful lot about it. Um, but then they, we got back in contact and they basically said, we need to find a home for at least one of our old computers. That control the London Underground. So we were like, right, we're there. So we went down to visit them, and we found three of these machines, and they were called Mummy Bear, Daddy Bear, and Baby Bear. Of course they were. Um, so Mummy Bear and Daddy Bear control more lines. So this is the Bakerloo line. <laughs> so it's only one line. So this is Baby Bear. This is Baby Bear. <laughs> um, it was installed in 1985, I believe. Wow. And. Wonderful story about this was, was the gentleman, they bought it online in 1985 and then they retired it. Yeah, that sounds about right. In 2021. So <gasps> oh, my God. Tw- from yeah. 85 to 2021. I was getting flippant there and you, you, you quite correctly pulled me up and, and to a dead stop, much now, like the trains. They have evolved, so they're, they're essentially the same machine, but the tape drive here you can see has got bits of paper put in it. This was decommissioned... I believe they said in uh, 2009, I think. So they decommissioned the tape drive and then they just went over to... They installed these um, backup disks. Yeah. Um, so, again, that, that's... I mean, what you've just pulled out there, again, for the listener, there's, 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 there's four of the bays, although confusingly numbered zero to three, um, is, is kind of what... I mean, I know I've, I'm, I'm perhaps unusual in, the, in my portrait home. I've got a RAID server. And... Um, that's what I back the podcast on to. Uh, and there's, like, insertable hard drive units yes. for, for, for backing up. But what we've got is basically uh, three, fil- three things the size of filing cabinet, uh, a four-drawer filing cabinet. Uh, but it's got, you know, and, and I'm assuming these, these, these four lock-sealed... Yeah. Uh, are they... What, what so kind they're, of they're are later they? as well. So, yeah. again, an, another old-style... Um, tape drive was removed and these SCSI drives were put in mm. to back the data up. So they evolved, but they worked much the same. And what's amazing is that the only reason these were retired in 2021 is because they ran out of spare parts. Yeah. They've yeah. got, in the room next door, a huge graveyard of machines that they've spent 20 years trying to replace these with. Right. And they're all... My goodness. 
And I notice, uh, it says on your notice above this, coming soon, we'll be unveiling an exciting exhibit yeah. based around the original programme. Yeah. Well, we, we look forward to that. I'm not going to press you because uh, you tell, me, tell me anything you can tell me, but um, that sounds like something worth coming back to see. Yeah, so basically what we want to do is we want to have this line lighting up as it w did originally, so as the train went through the, the stations, you yeah. get these lights wow. coming up. And also the programme, the original programme, or a copy of it, we're going to have to emulate it because we can't have it running on these machines. But um, it will be up on that screen. That, that must be a fun challenge, um, yeah. to get all those things together. Yeah, they're going to, to help to us with that, so that, that's great. Oh, wow. We're going to have... They had a circular... Each one had a circular control panel as well with a telephone and... A, old-style mouse on it to control all this, and we're going to recreate something as similar as we can. It's, oh, you can see the control desk there. Oh, there yes, I can, I can. You're right, there's a, there's a, there's a photo on this, on this display board. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and this is the kind of thing you really don't want any mistakes. So no, we're coming back to fertiliser explosions, yeah. trains, bomb sites. Yes. And, um, right, we'll move through to the next area. So our next room's all about control, so we've got how you would have controlled computers. So... Um, it's thought back in Charles Babbage's time, Ada Lovelace might have used something like the Jacquard card to, to get the information onto yeah. the difference engine, which would have been exactly that, a great big steam engine yes. running on pistons, if he'd have ever got it finished. So, yeah, this tells you all about data processing and um, binary and all the different languages that go into computing goes right the way... Oh, yes. I, golly, you're right. I, I, I'd look down and, you know, autocode COBOL, Fortran, 40s, 50s, and, and it continues around Logo, Grass, Prolog, SQL. Oh, golly. Uh, and C++, was starting to the things. Ada, I wonder why they called it that. Um, yeah. And then you've got Java, Python from the 1990s, these boards stretching above us in all sorts of colours. Lovely. PowerShell, Rust. Yeah, PowerShell, yes. Yeah. PHP, JavaScript... Uh, James Adams, if you're listening, and you should be, uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, you'll know all these. Um, brilliant. Yeah, Thank so you. We'll I'm definitely bringing a calculator a, yeah. section here at oh, some point. Good. And then what we've got in here is uh, it's become one of our most popular... 70s office. So, yes, this hey. is the 1970s office. So everything in here dates from that time. So um, Is it we, wrong I like the carpet? Oh, no, not at all. That's <laughs> absolutely deliberate. So we've got our Videc machine in the corner here, which used eight-inch floppy disks, had a massive hard disk in the back, but also you'll notice a vertical screen. Do you know what? It took me a while, but you're right. It is a vertical so screen. They decided if you need 80 columns, let's build the screen. Why not? Upright. Why not do so, it that way? And here's its massive printer. Um, then we've got a Commodore PET. So, of course, the Commodore PET and... Commodore in general, we've got to thank, really, for starting to hammer the price of the computers down. Yes. So, basically, um, they gave themselves a huge advantage by buying MOS Tech, mm -hmm. MOS Technology, and they were able then to get... They've got their own research and development for microchips. Yeah. They've got... They're first in the queue for them. Yeah. And they only have to pay the cost. There's competition rules that stop this sort of thing happening now. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, all these other chip manufacturers are scrabbling then to try and match performance and price. And everything's getting driven down. Yes. Towards this, to, this is eventually, I think, somewhere at $4,500 or something. But imagine those big PDPs are like 100000 Um And this, is, this comes along only a few years later. I mean, I, I see that 
you've got uh, an example of sort of 70s coding. And I'm not, I wasn't quite a child of the 70s, not quite that, that vintage. But I remember my, I had a Commodore. Uh, it was my, uh, um, and banging in exactly this sort of thing, 10, 20, 30, 40, go, yeah. to, go yeah. to 10. What I, my eyes taken by the the, the modem <laughs> now that, that you've got here which is which is not what people think it's it is basically and and adrian has just demonstrated by a, a very sort of bit, the kind of phone you got from bt in this in the 70s and 80s sort of push button phone in in sort of very very sexy brown uh plastic slash bagel like whatever whatever it's made of and and, and he, he's pulled taken off the handset uh and basically plonked it into the the rubber is it rubber? Yeah. Housings on, on, the, on the modem. And the last time I saw anything like that was in the movie Sneakers. Um, and they, you know, they, they were using that as a modem and they, they, yeah, they, so they pushed it in and pulled they, it off. They the, turned the, te- the telephone into an in-out device. Mm. So that goes in the top. That will receive data. That will send data. And, um, of course, if you've got any crackles on the line, you could be in. Yeah, yeah it literally played... Once and zeros down the phone line. Of course. I mean, uh, you, again, you, most, most of us will probably remember the early days of um, uh, of the internet where you, you dialed in. You know, you Absolutely. weren't on, on, all, on a yeah, constant, yeah. constant broadband. Um, whoops. I got my wires caught there, uh, as opposed to crossed. Um, uh, you know, you, you, you had to sit there and wait for the tones to, to, to connect. But, Absolutely. Uh, dot matrix. There you go. Absolutely. Yes, so the great big dot matrix printers like you see over there by the Videc and incredibly noisy things um we've got an hp one that's deafening um out <laughs> in the main gallery that's huge and there's a tiny i, I my eye is merely taken by this tiny commodore calculator simply yeah. because my dad had one <laughs> and he'd do his bookkeeping with it absolutely fantastic so yes we've got a few mates of calculator in here um melcor which is the name that probably won't mean very much to people until you look it up I like people but there's that. yeah but there's you know there's, there's the, those names kind of sort of get first they get distilled and then when yes, technology absolutely. changes they go out and in and out and in and um, uh, so yeah so it's where your PC gets a little bit more personal so this is when it gets on your desk you're still very very rich if you've got one of these in your Indeed. home so it's an IBM you've got it? the IBM so this is normally running Windows 1 but it's developed a problem with its uh, monitor Windows- do you know, I only really sort of know Windows from three point something or other. Yes, yeah, so but being IBM, you didn't really use a mouse. You would use the grey keys to navigate. Mm. Incredibly awkward. Um, and it's really only my um, Apple coming along, you know, with these... Um, oh, those are... So are the original Apple Mac. Yeah, so you've got the original symbols. So what size of disk is that? Is that the, 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 the so size that we... three and a half inch Three and a half, yeah. Yeah, three and a half inch disk. And of course, yeah, data's getting smaller all the time, so we're... We're down to the five and a quarter inch disc, then the yep. three and a half inch. So even though that's uh, two thirds the size of the f- yeah. uh, five and a quarter, it's got three times as much data on it. Indeed. I mean, I've still got a floppy drive in a box because on the on the you never know basis. Yes. Uh, behind you here, you've got the Altair, which is of course where Microsoft started. So Microsoft right. ran uh, wrote the basic for this machine. Otherwise, you'd be hitting these switches. <laughs> absolutely so awkward to use and if you made a mistake you work your way around the mistake there's no yeah. erasing the line so Bill Gates and Paul Allen come along and they write the basic program for the Altair and um, they do it in only a few weeks they have got no idea when they bring it to Altair if it's going to work programs right. loaded in with a paper tape which we're trying to recreate and um, 
they loaded the program in and it came up with ready and then I believe Paul Allen uh, did two plus two and it came up with four so they knew it was working. <laughs> Excellent, that's it. So, um, you, you, you seem to have many, many labours of love yes. in this building. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Adrian. Yes. One, another one here, so this is a machine built at a computer club by Steve Ferber, one of the um, Acorn engineers. So this is what he built at a computer oh club. Me. So this is the, the beginnings of Acorn hardware right here because he used some of the principles in the later machines. I'm, I will be bringing my engineer back here because he, he'll, he'll love this. I'm slightly shamefaced I didn't bring him with me, but... <laughs> yeah, but so... Always need... Always uh, good one, to come back. One little point in computing history where everything didn't quite marry up. They didn't... They yeah. didn't keep... Yeah. And that is these big... Uh, what we affectionately call them luggables. So these are some of the first portables. We've got the Osborne one here. And so. it's because they still have to use these big discs. Yeah. So everything is sacrificed for this big media. Mm -hmm. um, the size of the screen, the screen is tiny. Oh, yeah. Um, very, it's, very hard to read when it's on. Um, it looks like the kind of thing that, in the sort of 70s and 80s, um, soldiers would look around yeah. in the field. Absolutely. Uh, you know, like, uh, yeah. you know, what, these days they've got tough books. Well, these, this, is, this looks like something you, you can pack up and, you know, with, if you're strong enough... <laughs> Yeah, carry it around with of you. Of course, it's designed to be that tall, so it, it would have gone under an aircraft seat. Of, right, of OK. So it had to be only a certain height, so it would go on an aircraft. Designed in Cambridge, I see here, very proudly. Yeah, so that, that's, um, you'll see an awful lot of that throughout the building. I, I should Cambridge hope so. Um, and then, yes, we've got the three-and-a-half-inch disc, gets the machines smaller and smaller. Um, yeah, I, re I, I came from some yeah. machines, a three and a half inch disc. That's what really? they were first. That's what they were first used in. Absolutely. Um, yes, and then we've got our games area over here. So if you want to play Ooh. any of your video game consoles, we've got everything oh from the Binotone. You have 1977 all the way up to Pong. the GameCube. And then they basically become <laughs> PCs and boxes yes. after that. So, they, um, they do indeed, and they got you, you've got the Sega Master System. Absolutely. The, oh, the yeah. classic Nintendo ES with, yeah. ma with Mario. Um, and then here's our Apple display. So we've got ah. an Apple One, not an original. Don't get too excited. So this one, <laughs> this was built by a volunteer. This is why we have volunteers. They're magnificent. And they basically, or he basically put this together for us from an original board. It's fully working. Oh it God. behaves exactly like an Apple One, so it overheats very, very quickly. <laughs> Um, but, you know, this started Apple on their way. You've got everything now on this board you need for a computer. You've got the processor, the basic ROM, the memory, um, the, the kernel ROM, as it's called, to send all the yeah. instructions elsewhere. And, of course, with that humble beginning, they launched the Apple II, which is there. It is. And, and the Apple II, God bless it, it's, shall we dare say, a tad functional. It's what, sorry? So, a tad functional. So it yes. doesn't look like an Apple product of today, does it? No. It, uh, for a so, company that's kind of, these days, based its, its, its rep around yeah. being sleek, being desirable, being, exactly. dare I say, sexy. I dare. Yeah. Sexy. This is, as you say, functional. It's yes. basically a beige with two <laughs> giant box. disk drives yeah. and a monitor, all one on top of the other. But they were very lucky that a company called Visicorp wrote a programme called Physicalc 
Yes. So this is what was, we call it the first killer app. The first the killer first app. The first reason to own a computer. Yes. So this was before the days where you would write a program on one machine, mm -hmm. then you would port it to another one. Yeah. And run it on that. If they wrote it on this machine, this is what it was published on. Mm -hmm. So it's not until another two years that it starts appearing on the um, Tandy machines, the Radio yep. Shack mm -hmm. machines. And so they've got this massive head start of sales and it helps them sell hundreds of thousands more Apple IIs. Yeah. Um, and that just shows that software as well as um, good hardware, or you don't even necessarily need great hardware. Um, if you've got really, really great software, you are going to be yeah. a winner. So then we've got our newly workings. One of our guys have got our Apple III working. The Apple III. Or as we like to describe it, the Apple II and a half. <laughs> um, it, it, it's not a great advance in terms of... No. I mean, they've, they've integrate, integrated the disk drive now, but it's not a great advance in terms of its no. to be fair. This is our latest machines. That were, I went and got this myself. I actually got this into a Ford Fiesta. Um, as, the, as the owner of a Ford Fiesta, I can only salute you. Yes, so I couldn't see out my rearview mirror on the way home. <laughs> I shouldn't possibly announce that. But, yes, yeah, so this is a... What you would... I suppose you'd call it now. It's a terminal server, but... The processor, everything, the computer is here. Yeah. And then you've got all these connections on the back. This one could talk to ten terminals. And you would have your terminal on your desk working off of this one machine. Right. So imagine that's I a see. bit and opposite they, they to what you've got nowadays. So you'd have your, yeah, you'd be doing your work on your desk. And um, massive hard disk in the bottom there, if you can just see. Yes. Oh, gosh, yes, I can. Enormous. Yes, I can. So, yeah, the, this, in the end, by the time they fully advanced it, could handle up to 60 terminals. Um, because, yeah, at this point, even in the early 1980s, um, especially in the big business arena, these, these machines were not personal. Wow. Um, Incredible. Yes, yeah, so we can come down further. We've got uh, some British machines people... Well, I expect a lot of your listeners would have heard of, but a lot of our visitors haven't. So these are British business machines. So we've got Sirius... Apricot. I remember apricots. I, I remember hearing about them. Yeah. Quickly. Um, also, there was a company here in Cambridge as well called Torch, who turned the BBC Micro into a business machine. I used to have one of those. So there's Apple Max. Here we are, designed it. in Cambridge again, and then Torch started producing much more sophisticated machines. The leap is incredible from this, this Torch yes. machine. It's this giant yeah. sort of brown. And this is another one of our purposes to, to put yeah. these machines out. People can touch them, get a feel for them. But that's incredible, because it's, um, it's, you know, obviously some of the exhibits are rightly where people can't touch them. Yes, this one's a rare... This one. one's a rare... Um, it, it, a it's rare just one to that get, you can't. Absolutely. get a feel of that. And you can just see technology advancing in just absolutely. in front of you. Yeah, absolutely. And no more so in than if we come past our learning wall, which you will learn all about programming languages again and what you can find inside your phone and your yes. tablet... How memory is advanced. We've got a big display on memory uh, there. <laughs> and also, we've got a display here that was built by one of our volunteers. So if you take the hard disk, it will then... Oh, my goodness! It will then tell you all about that. You put the hard disk on, then it just completely... Put it on the On target. the screen, it explodes it and, and tells you what, what, what's inside it. The processor. Incredible. I mean, we've had to add this to it, because obviously now... Yeah. This, is, this type of machine is... Largely out of date. Yeah, it's, I mean, what we're um, looking at is, is for listeners, is, is basically uh, uh, what most of us used to 
Uh, it's, it's a Windows XP, so that gives you some idea of the vintage. Um, and, and, and basically the components that most of us know, the PSU, you've got the, the, the DVD-ROM drive, you've got the RAM chips, the hard drive, uh, the, 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 uh, a passive graphics card, and, and sound card, and um, modem. Absolutely, and in our little display here, we've got how we need to care for these objects as well. So this Nintendo console's had its wires wrapped around it. And yeah, and you can see that. They've got a chemical on them that keeps them bendy. Yes. And they've actually melted into the case. I see, yeah. So it's a, that, I mean, that's a classic slice of, 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 of Japanese technology. Yeah. Uh, mm. I, you know, imagine they're not then easy to combine. Then there's examples of yellowing, so plastic yeah. yellows. It doesn't yellow because of the sun. It yellows as a combination of heat will accelerate it, but it doesn't cause it. Right. So... Plastic is decaying all the time. It's off-gassing. It's letting off a gas. And if you trap that into a box, and you'll open that box up a good while later, or if you wrap that machine in cloth or whatever, you will be trapping that gas onto the machine. And that is largely what causes the discoloration. Also, you can see this polystyrene here where the cables yeah. have eat, literally eaten into so, the polystyrene. As someone with uh, a certain amount of plastic on, on sort of displaying cabinets at home... Um, I'm not sure what it is. Um, <laughs> it's not Lego, honest. Um, is it, are you saying that it's not possible to stop yellowing? No, you can slow it down. So right. our collection room is kept cool, um, and that's one way of slowing it down. But, yeah, plastic decay, there is nothing you can do about it. If you've ever picked up something and the plastic's split or something, it's because, basically, yeah. it is going brittle with age. Right. Okay, I owe my wife an apology now. I will let her open the curtains. <laughs> yes. So, um, hey, uh, you, you have a line of champagne bottles I here. I do. Yes, so basically, when Arm were wrestled away from Acorn, when Acorn were rapidly going downhill in 1998, um, the, uh, the first Arm chip, or the first example of it, had been an accelerator chip for the original BBC. Yeah. So they built it into a size unit, and it was to make the earlier Acorn machines more powerful. Yeah. But what they totally accidentally realised they'd done, if you know the story of ARM, they had created a chip that used almost no power. Right. That produced almost no heat. Yeah. But because it was a reduced instruction set computer or RISC machine, it could do more but with less instructions. Right. So therefore it wouldn't use as much power, it wouldn't use as much heat, and that became the ARM chip the advanced risk machine. And what they did is every time they launched a new chip, they would launch it with a bottle of champagne. And, and it says here that uh, Sophie Wilson co-designed the original ARM processor, wrote on each champagne bottle, and I can see that indeed she has. Yes. And, and, and again, this is 25 years of ARM, a visual history. It's more than what? that now. <laughs> um, well, at yeah. the time, we were 25 yeah. years of arm when this was put up in. Um, we do need to uh, at the end of Q this. Q3 2015. Um, but yeah. I mean, it's still a, still a, still a fascinating Absolutely. slice of, of, of history. I mean, it says on here as well that 98% of mobile phones use an arm chip. Not now. Others have got the share of the market clawed their way um, in. Well, basically, Apple Apple have got the Apple Arm, which is okay. It's basically still an arm chip, but they've. They've modified it enough to make it their own. I mean, th when these I days you've got, um, you've got people in Russia yes. breaking open oh, whatever they can yeah. find to grab Absolutely. microprocessors. It's, uh, it's interesting. So our last real 
important display here is our timeline of 80s micros. Okay, right. a couple of them are late 79. Yeah, we all split hairs. But they were largely launched in 1980. Yeah. Now, this is where your computer became personal to you. So if you had one of these machines, because they were so new, it almost became tribal. Yes. So if you yeah. owned like the little ZX81 here, and then your friend might have owned an Acorn Atom, yeah. these rivalries started coming Ooh. out. It became like the playground wars, they were called. Yes. Have you got Sinclair or have you got... Um, yeah, have you got a, a Commodore? Yeah. Have exactly. you got a... Um, Dragon, the only Welsh computer down there. And then, of Ooh. course, later on, Amstrad joined the party. But this is where they really became personal. This is when they arrived in your home. Um, and, of course, early on, Sinclair hits on the idea that it's your little computer and that's it. There that is, is nothing... You're holding to... Tiny. It's yes, ZX81. So it's not cost-effective or it's completely cost-effective, so it's got a tiny case. It is, it's only yeah. got four chips on its board. So, um, processor, RAM, video, and basic. It hasn't got a proper keyboard. Yeah. Because everything is mechanical. If you add mechanical, you're instantly bringing the price up. It hasn't even got an on and off switch, because that would have put that a few pence is mechanical. Yeah, it's got one kilobyte of memory. Um, you could expand it, you could put this box on the back and you have just 16K. Six, wow. Um, but if you wobbled that at all, That's you would you, lose yeah. everything you've done. Which, when you're typing on a flat keyboard, is... And, of course, then he hits on the idea that we won't sell you a monitor, we won't yeah. sell you disk drives. Indeed. You have got everything you need in the home already. So you've got a TV, you've almost certainly got a spare TV. Yep. Mm -hmm. Your spare TV is likely to be black and white. So exactly, as, as ours was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's got no sound capabilities. Yeah. And for your in-and-out device, you use a cassette player that you play on your music. So you're not buying all this extra... Extraneous matter, yeah. Um... Then you would get your book that you would program your machine mm. with. There's, you are leafing through the Sinclair ZX81 yes. basic programming manual. By the time you've worked your way through that, you would be pretty competent. And that led to business in the UK, particularly, mm -hmm. called the Bedroom Coders. We'd have ah. young people, sadly, almost always boys, <laughs> um, working away, selling their programs to publishers and making some quite serious amounts of money doing it. So they would, they would go down their arcade, they would copy the arcade machine, they'd make variations of it. Some were straight ports. We've got Bombjack running on the Spectrum down here, which is a very, very good copy of the original arcade machine. Oh, yes. And um, I might not pick Spectrum there, but, yeah, you could play the arcade game in yeah. your home. And then, obviously, break into the code and vary it in some way. Indeed. Um, I mean, uh, just just you mentioned boys. Although I have, I have to sort of give a shout out for, for um, Robin Milton, who I recently interviewed, who set up a, a game focused uh, gaming company, a computer games company focused on uh, women, on female games. Yes, absolutely. Called Fairer Games. Yeah. And um, she was a fantastic interview. Um, and uh, look forward to, uh, to. Yes. Well, thank goodness. Now the tide seems to be turning Indeed. back and equalising this. Absolutely. Um, because back in the 1980s, I can give you a terrible example of what happened, mm. is that I had to pick my specialist subject, so I picked baking. Right. Um, a young lady in my class named Nikki, she picks computer studies. Yeah. Called to the headmistress's office, we're swapped round. Oh, dear. 
Yeah. And Thankfully, I think that those days are behind they, us. Yes, thank goodness, because what they ended up with by the end of the second term was a terrible baker <laughs> in Nicky and an even worse computer studies programmer in myself. I couldn't get the hang of it, <laughs> which is why I didn't pick it. Yeah. So eventually what they did was they moved me back into baking, but they didn't put Nicky back into computing studies. Oh, good grief. So um, it was very, very strange time. Indeed, and mm. absolutely no reason for it whatsoever, other than marketing. They marketed these machines. Mm. And, of course, all the early lady pioneers, like I was talking about Mary Coombs earlier. Yes, indeed. And all the ladies that would have programmed the um, Susie machine down the bottom there. And I was speaking to one recently, and she said, the only reason I left the industry was because I raised a family. There's no childcare. You were expected to raise that, that family. Mm. And by the time she came back in, like, the 1980s, things had moved on. Yeah. And, and that, that, that's, that's the trouble, isn't it? You can't, you can't keep up. I'm just Absolutely. I'm noticing you have an Amiga A, A1200. Yeah. But, yeah, I had an A500, but I'm pl he's playing Magic Pockets. Yeah. And, of course, this situation arose where you're left with the Commodore's Amiga and the Atari ST, plus the cheaper PCs, if you could afford them from Alan Sugar, because he yeah. was getting them made in, uh, I think, it was Singapore. So they were far cheaper than the IBM alternatives because none of these companies along here learnt the huge lesson that Microsoft was already teaching the world, even in the um, mid, mid to late 80s, which is you license your software. Yeah. So none of these companies were making any money out of the software. Yeah. So one after the other, their margins were getting lower as the competition increased. So many of these machines were produced. Yeah. And eventually you were just left with the American giants. Yeah. Well, I, I always remember you, you looking for a computer, you look for the words IBM PC compatible. Absolutely. Not an IBM PC, just yeah. compatible. There you go. I'm oh, sorry, I, I remember how to, to, to play uh, Magic Pockets. <laughs> and I used to have that for my, uh, for my computer at home. It's a soundtrack by Betty Boo. As the, Absolutely, uh, yeah. As, 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 uh, as the memory serves. I've still got one Amiga disc at home. But, of uh, course, with the, with the loss of these micros, people weren't going to program on their, B, on their um, Commodores and what have you. So p kids were like, well, I did. I went back to consoles. Mm, you don't program yeah. a console. No, you don't have to. It's, there's there's no, so it's, no it's all done for you. You've got that complete dislodge between programming and playing the final product. But computers can be uh, upgraded. Absolutely. Uh, you know, yeah. one component at a time, perhaps. But in a way that you know, once once you know, Nintendo or Sega or Tony or whoever it is uh, have done with have done with that model, yeah. uh, then you're left with just basically a piece of plastic yeah. and the games yes, you've already bought. Of course, that's it. These machines weren't terribly compatible. These machines. So Commodore were gone by '94, and Atari. Yeah, they produced the. Um, Atari Jaguar console, they started yeah. concentrating on consoles. And, of course, they just became a publisher after yeah. that. And all this, all that was lost. And I think it was in, so I have in 92 or 97, I can't remember which government it was, but they decided to teach kids how to use a computer rather mm. than how to actually get it working, programming. So we were left with this horrible, like, 15-year skills gap when they suddenly realised, we've got to get people coding again. Yeah, and that's why I was saying, um, we've got things like tech educators that are started in, in Norwich, but they're sort of branching out across the country that's, that's teaching people to code from the ground up, and they've got people driving diggers in the day, yeah. and then going to learn to code at night. 
got sort of boot camps and more advanced things. And uh, there's so much good stuff going on. Adrian, thank you so much. I've really, really enjoyed it. And I will be coming back with, with the family and with my engineer slash father-in-law uh, to look at, at all this fantastic stuff. What a pleasure to see it all. Um, thank you for your time. Yes, so, yeah, we're open Wednesday through to Sunday. Good news. 10 until 5. So, yeah, anyone locally or further afield, yes, do come down and see please, us. Please do come to the Centre of Computing History. Uh, remind us of your website address. So we're www.computinghistory.org.uk. And, uh, yes, that's one of the things with our website as well that's uh, really amazing is if you can't make it down to the museum, our entire collection is actually online. Wow. So you yeah. can see everything we've got, all the software, the hardware, it's all photographed yeah. and brought up. I can't recommend it highly enough. I've had a thoroughly oh, enjoyable couple of hours here. Excellent. And uh, do, do please come to Cambridge. It's really easy to get to. Give it a try. I've been back to the Centre for Computing History since this was recorded, and I urge you to visit. There's guaranteed to be something that'll take you back to your childhood, and the stories behind the exhibits, conveyed so brilliantly by Adrian, are amazing. Please do visit, it's really easy to get to, and you can find out more at computinghistory.org.uk. And now... <laughs> Welcome, children of the night. Let us creep into the crypt and visit the deepest dungeons, the darkest towers, and the kookiest castles in this week's... Crowd Sorcery. Yes, crowd sorcery. Welcome to... No, no, stop. Right there. I cannot keep this ridiculous Count Von Count voice going a moment longer. So, let's try this instead. Okay. Well, hey, nonny, nonny. It's a good old medieval banquet with roaring fires, mock beer and a spit roast. And who do we have at court today? Why, tis the Earl of Minsmere himself, Richard Powell, OBE, environmental and charity advisor and independent chair. Lord Powell, what say you? Not Gothic, but Orford Castle has to be up there as a great building, looking over a coast full of legend. Tower-wise, we are blessed with so many 11th century round-towered churches, all with such history and silent spookiness and Gothic additions. Talking of Gothic editions, Ely Cathedral, the ship or galleon of the Fens, has to be superb, but just a wander round the streets of central Norwich is superb gothically, much better than York. <laughs> now there's a statement. Some might say that's controversial, Richard, but to a Lancastrian such as I, I say, you speak the truth. Now we come to Slayer of the Dark Beasts bedeviling your business and purveyor of knowledgeable support across the Oxford Innovation portfolio, Neil Griffin. I always remember Blytheborough Church with the hellhound black shuck scorch marks apparently on the door. Very D&D. &D. Thank you, Neil. 
Let's hope we keep Black Shuck's fiery paws from the doors, with your sage advice. We turn now to another knowledgeable adventurer, Paul Cooper, partner for the Ridge Cambridge office. Paul will advise you of where to see untold secret wonders in this most ancient of cities. It's the parts of Cambridge you can't see that I love, says Paul. The undercrofts that only contain services and stores can often be spectacular, not least because you can't see them coming. Oh! Thank you, Paul. And now, it is ancient custom on this part of the show, and certainly not something I made up, that the last word goes to the show's most recent guest, which is that venerable wizard of words, Dr. Garrick Fincham. What about Baconsthorpe near Holt? says Garrick. Often overlooked, it's not quite as manicured as other sites like Castleacre and has a pretty gothic atmosphere, tumbled walls and marsh creeping through where the old moat once was. Now that casts a spooky picture. Stoned walls fractured by thyme and vine. Thankfully, we're here in the warm where we can thank our hale and hearty friends for their manifold wisdom and nary a dragon to be seen. In an orderly fashion, it's just a dragon. No need to panic. Now, I did warn you that that was going to happen this week. You can't expect me not to have a little fun from time to time, eh? That's all for this week, folks. My thanks to Adrian Page Mitchell of the Centre for Computing History, to Chris Bruce of Cambridge Tech Week, to all my crowd sorcerers, and to the stereophonic shaman himself, Engineer 49. And most of all, thank you to you. Thank you for supporting Eastern Promise and listening to the great news about the East of England. Next week, I'll be chatting to Professor Nick Talbot, Executive Director of the Sainsbury Laboratory on Norwich Research Park. I'll also be hearing from Dr Samantha Fox and Dr Shannon Woodhouse about how you can get involved in the STEM village in the Discovery Zone at this year's Royal Norfolk show. I'll be counting the seconds until then. So, bye for now. One, two, three, four. Eastern Promise is a Priors Croft production for the Eastern Promise East Anglia Community Interest Company.